Hi, and welcome to Embark. I'm Liz Solar, and we generally talk about what's next, but let's talk about what's happening right now, because April is Poetry Month, and we've invited a poet to spend the day with us and talk about the month and talk about the state of poetry in general. Sarah Latorno is a poet as well as the managing editor and writing coach at Heart of the Story Editorial and Coaching Services. In her editing work, she specializes in speculative fiction, literary fiction, YA, that's young adult fiction, memoir, and prescriptive nonfiction, which I'd like to hear more about. Her poetry has been featured in or will appear in Aromatica Poetica, Constellations, Mass Poetry's Poem of the Moment, Soulit, and many, many more, which you will see in the liner notes of this podcast. She's also a former music journalist, which is really a dying breed, and maybe we'll get into that too, and tea reviewer, Now You Got Me Hooked. And her articles about writing have appeared in blogs such as DIY MFA, our friend Gabriella Pereira. Writers Helping Writers, and Grub Street. She lives in Massachusetts and is known for always having a book, a journal, a pen, and a cup of tea handy. Sarah, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Liz. It's great to be here. Thank you. So what kind of tea are you drinking first? Because I'm a tea drinker. Um, I think mine is um, a Chinese oolong tea from Adagio Tea. That sounds lovely. Mine's a Tulsi Rose. I just felt in a rosy mood today because it's so, it's still wintry. At the beginning of the year, of course, we had the inauguration of a new president. And, mm-hmm. you know, with that, an introduction to this young poet, Amanda Gorman. And that seemed to perk a little bit more interest in poetry, something that I, I feel it's an overlooked genre. So, what is it about poetry that we're overlooking? And what is it? that poetry gives us that maybe other types of genre or media doesn't give us? So I think one of the unique things about poetry is that it's, it, it offers an immediate impact through artfully delivered language, imagery, and deep thoughtfulness. Um, poems are generally shorter than novels and other forms of literature, um, which sometimes means that they're smaller in scope and especially and particularly in word count, but it, they're in some ways they're equally complex. In poems, we can see a poet exploring um, a topic, theme, memory, or a scene using precise word choices, um, carefully considered line breaks, um, images, and um, other elements that show the reader what they see and how they're thinking or feeling at that moment. It sort of allows the poet to take the reader on a journey through the language and insight and emotion, um, and that it can leave a reader feeling just as moved as they would feel as if they had read um, a novel or seen a movie, um, except in a shorter amount of time and in fewer pages or words. Poems these days are sometimes you can see them taking a particular form or um, meter or word count um, or line count, but sometimes poems are free form and it doesn't really matter what structure they have in the end. I think a poet always knows that whenever they are writing a poem, they know they only have um, a certain amount of time on the page, so to speak, to deliver whatever pictures, imagery, messages, ideas that they want to share. And um, it's that's why it's as important as possible to be very 
succinct and precise and as vivid as possible. And I think that's what makes poetry so effective in the end. Yeah, one could argue that poetry might be the most impactful type of writing or the most impactful genre because you do have to fit concepts, themes, uh, aspirations in a very short passage. They wind up pretty quickly. And there is something, that, that genius of brevity, of being able to convey so much uh, with just really perfect word choice. Mm-hmm. We, we talked a little bit about Amanda Gorman in the intro. How do you think she has influenced or has she how people are reacting to poetry? She certainly brought more attention to it as a result of um, that amazing poem that she read, The Hill We Climb, uh, during the inauguration. And she's also reminded people, I think, of the importance of poetry, too, because, you know, she didn't just simply read a poem. She wrote, she read a poem that is very relevant to the here and now, um, touching on ideas and themes that are, were important at the time and are still important now because it was such an important piece. And a lot of people realized that it's captured a lot of attention that way. But also, it was just so eloquently and rhythmically delivered that it really helped people. It it reminded me a little bit of, um, it reminded me a little bit of slam poetry, where people, uh, where the poet is on a stage and either delivers a poem that they have memorized or that they improvise on the spot. And I know this was, I believe this was a poem she had already written, but it, there was still something about that rhythmic quality of hers that reminded me of slam which i thought was really interesting but it also helps make it more memorable to a degree and i think just because how the importance of the themes and how it was delivered i mean it's it touched a lot of people certainly it was evident in how many people shared the video of her reading that poem on social media afterward and i know based on what i've seen afterwards that i think there is a book that has actually come out that is just her poem the hill we climb it is currently number 1 on the new york times bestseller list which says a lot and i know she has a full length collection of poetry coming out later this year titled i think right now it's titled the hill we climb and other poems last i knew sales for that book have scott have been through the roof And perhaps a lot of people may not know this, especially if they're not as familiar with poetry, but poetry in past several years has actually seen different versions of resurgence. And I think this is one of those other waves of it. The previous wave came in the past few years when a lot of poets from Instagram um, started publishing their work and their books um, sold a lot. Um, I'm thinking of poets such as um, Atticus uh, Rupi Kaur and um, Amanda Lovelace, a lot of their poems are very short and to the point, um, usually so they can fit in a single Instagram post. The books that they have put out since then, obviously all their poems sort of still fit that um, aesthetic. A lot of them have been New York Times bestsellers. Booksellers and the industry has seen since then is that every time, you know, whenever, as a result of perhaps these other books coming out, other poets' books who are not necessarily Instagram-style poets, but more traditional or contemporary poets have also seen spikes, increases in sales. I think what's going to happen as a result of Amanda and her, you know, the popularity of The Hill We Climb is it's just going to draw more attention to poetry in general. And people will find other poets whose work resonates with them as a result of 
Amanda's work as well. What's interesting is you can see particularly younger poets or writers who are outside with their old-timey typewriters. And, mm-hmm. you know, for a couple bucks, you know, donation, whatever you feel it, it is worth, they will write poem for you. They will personalize something based on a word that you give them and do it on on the spot. Oh, yeah. So it's coming up in different places. It happened, and it was before a pandemic, but it was in New Orleans where there are many street performers. It was really gratifying to see people out there. And there was a line of maybe four or five men and women who were typing away, and they started to gather this crowd because it's it's a curious thing to see people out there with, uh, you know, their old royal typewriters mm-hmm. manually just tapping out things in, and on demand. You know, we're such an on-demand society and that somebody can create something for you in the moment is a, a really special thing. So I'm wondering where else that is happening. I've seen it happen in the Boston area and, in fact, no one poet who is doing it. I'm wondering if it's a trend, whether it's something that is isolated, but it's exciting to see. I'm actually just finding out about this right now as you're telling me. (laughs) There you go. I mean, I know that there are, I mean, there are poets and poetry nonprofits like throughout the country that do work to sort of promote poetry, spread the word about it, encourage people to write it or, you know, read more of it. Um, and there are different outreach efforts like that. Um, I know that um, here in Massachusetts, we have one such organization called Mass Poetry. Um, they're actually the organization that puts on the Massachusetts Poetry Tree Festival. Most years, it last year, they didn't have one because of the pandemic, but they are going to have a virtual version of the event this year in a few weeks. But the different places do different things to um, to promote poetry in different ways, or to at least um, show people the power of it. And um, you know, there are even I know in Boston, Grub Street has a youth has different youth writing programs. I would not be surprised if they do youth poetry writing programs. Um, so it's yeah, that's again, this is the first I'm hearing specifically about what you were just describing, which is. But I, which I think is awesome. It's to me, in in a from a big picture perspective, it's a pattern of just this continual effort to keep poetry in our culture and um, heightens people's awareness of it. Absolutely, there's something very maybe this is the wrong word, but I always feel romantic about poetry or more tragic. I, I feel that it's always heightened. Whatever that emotion is that we're feeling, it gets underlined in a way that doesn't always happen in prose where you just have pages and pages to elaborate. And it's it has its own type of beauty. If there's something about the economy of it that it hits you in a way that prose doesn't. Now, you have written both prose and poetry, right? Correct. Yes, I have. So how did you decide to put most of your effort into writing poetry as opposed to prose? Um, it was the decision that felt most natural. You know, it's it's funny because I was I was talking with another editor who also writes poetry yesterday and we were sort of talking about our how we both got into poetry and you know, it's one of those things I've gone back and forth between writing poetry and writing doing other types of writing. And I think the reason why I keep going back to poetry and why I've probably about four years ago, uh, decided it's really my home in terms of writing is, it's just the one that feels most natural. Um, I, I love playing with language. 
I love finding new ways of describing things that inspire me and showing readers, you know, whether it's a new perspective of the ordinary or, you know, everyday life or sort of uh, not advocating for topics like such as mental health or endangered species, um, but um, at least just bringing attention to them through poetry in ways that are creative and meaningful, but not necessarily preachy. Right, which I think is a really difficult line to walk because yes. it's easy to get prescriptive and mm-hmm. a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, virtue, showy, all of that stuff. And to be able to write something that is so crisp and so descriptive and impactful about something that is current, that's something that's really relevant and not make it seem like, you know, broccoli is, yeah. <laughs> is that's a huge feat. That's a big ask. Aside from the poetry, and you're pretty prolific with that part of your life, you are also a developmental editor. What What is it that a developmental editor does? One quick thing. Um, I actually do more than just developmental editing. I also do um, line editing, copy editing, and proofreading. So I'm sort of span, run the gamut, so to speak, when it comes to editing. But in terms of what developmental editing is, Developmental editing requires the editor to look at a manuscript from a big picture perspective and looking at, so you're looking at the building blocks, such as the plot, the characters, um, world building and magic system, if we're talking about uh, speculative fiction, um, setting, pacing, dialogue. So basically all the things that really help a story work and you read it through and sort of evaluate, okay, does the plot have any holes? Um, what are what makes the characters compelling? Um, do they act out of character at any point? You know, so you look at the story uh, for its strengths and also its areas of improvement. Once you finish reading the, or at least I always read the manuscript first to sort of get that big picture perspective, take notes, and to get an idea of what I need to do during the next step of the project, which is to actually go in and start using um, using track changes in Microsoft Word, pose changes based on the feedback that I started developing in my head and in my notes as I was reviewing the manuscript, what I was thinking during the original review, and working on an editorial letter that sort of goes into a little bit more detail. It sort of explains to the reader, uh, well, the author, excuse me, how these areas could use a little bit more work, maybe give an example, um, with maybe also some links to a couple blog posts in case they would like um, some more information on those particular elements or how to deliver how to deliver them a little bit better when they go in and revise the manuscript again based on the developmental edit. So what the author gets is a revised version of the manuscript um, with track changes. So my for transparency's sake on my end, as well as the editorial letter, maybe some additional things like a scene grid or a timeline if it's a memoir, and what they need to keep in mind as they continue working on the manuscript afterward. So what you do is look at that manuscript, and generally it's probably, what, a first or second draft of somebody's novel or short story? I just recently finished a developmental edit on a memoir and essays, and I know this is something the editor, the author has been working on for about 10 years and has been changing a lot over that time. Um, so I don't know how many drafts she's gone through. It's probably been several. I also recently did a critique on a different kind of manuscript, a YA fantasy manuscript. And I know that that author um, 
the version that I looked at was her third draft. I don't think I've looked at anything that has actually been a first draft. I think most authors have sent me something that has been a little bit further along at that point. To be clear, your job as the developmental editor is to take a a, a global view of what they've written, look Mm -hmm. for holes in the story, look pose questions where mm-hmm. a, a reader might become confused, perhaps offer some ways for them to get out of their own way so that they can explain things in, in a better way or a more direct way. So your your work happens way before they go to somebody who will do the line edits, who will correct grammar or punctuation, any of that kind of smaller stuff. Two thoughts. So I like what you were just saying because it it reminded me of how when I'm doing a developmental edit or a manuscript critique and the first step is me reading the manuscript, I always approach it from the perspective of a future reader. So if there's something that doesn't make sense or something, if I have questions about something, that's another thing that I will make a note about because it's important to know, it's important for the author to know when I, the editor acting as a future reader has these questions because other readers may have the same questions in the future. What are some of the traps that writers or authors or future authors, I'd like to say, fall into with their manuscripts? That depends on each manuscript. Each one's been very different. Sometimes I find that a character's reaction to uh, an important revelation or to an important event in the story is missing altogether. Or sometimes it's much different than what I would expect from the character. And in both cases, whether it's missing the reaction or something that feels perhaps out of character, it's something that I will, it's one, that's one of those things that I'll make a note about, especially because you want to make sure first that the character behaves consistently throughout a manuscript. Um, or in the case of the missing reaction, um, especially if that's a pattern that occurs throughout a manuscript, you want to make sure that those are, that's something that the re- author takes care of because you want to make sure that the story is emotionally engaging. When a, char- when a point of view character's reaction is missing, or when you sort of want to know when what the character is thinking at that moment, that lack of a reaction creates distance between the character and the reader. And it's sort of, the reader becomes disengaged at that time. When I see things like that, those are moments where I know that I need to let the author know that this is happening so that they can make the necessary revisions or edits to bring the reader closer to the character, to give them access to the character's um, emotions and thoughts, or to have the character act in a reactive kind of way. Other times things happen where um, other things I've seen are sometimes perhaps things are not described as much as they should be, or sometimes you find that the pacing is off. And depending on what that means, that can mean that either things are if it's too slow, perhaps things need to be, the writing needs to be tightened up somehow. If it's too fast, sometimes it means that things are missing from the manuscript, such as reactions, descriptions, and um, sometimes, oddly enough, by fixing pacing issues, you're, off, you're often fixing other issues within the manuscript as well. One of the things I do look at during a developmental edit is I do look at the writing style um, because you want to make sure even at that point at a developmental level, that the writing style is consistent throughout the manuscript. And also to see, because sometimes you find patterns that recur throughout the manuscript within the writing style that may need to be addressed in future drafts, whether it is 
you know, lack of description, um, wordiness. In some cases during a developmental edit, I may actually do some line editing to to sort of demonstrate the things I'm talking about in the editorial letter, while also using comments on the side to bring that to the writer's attention, the author's attention in the edited manuscript. One of the genres that you work in is prescriptive nonfiction. Mm-hmm. That piqued my interest because there's historical nonfiction and there's self-help and just you know a bunch of different types, biography. What is prescriptive? Um, self-help is actually considered a form of um, prescriptive nonfiction. Basically, it's nonfiction that instructs or guides or basically helps the reader do something, whether it's to improve in a certain area of life or do something they haven't done before or whatnot. Um, So there are different kinds of books that fall into that. Um, A lot of self-help books do just that. I've worked on a couple of books about writing. So um, books um, that basically target certain areas of, of the craft of writing are considered prescriptive nonfiction to a degree. Another book that I worked on earlier this year that would be considered prescriptive nonfiction was a uh, a book geared towards parents uh, to basically help them figure out how to talk to their kids about sex. That probably is a very difficult topic for a lot of parents to talk about, and I can understand why. So it's an umbrella. Yes. Who are some of your influences, some of your favorite writers? Are we talking about poetry or in general? Well, let's do A, poetry, and B, in general. You know, if you could mention two or three, that would be great. Okay. I think the poet who has been, who has probably had the most influence on my work is Mary Oliver. I first started reading her work maybe about 10 years ago, and I think her poetry has probably guided me in the direction that I've, that I I was, the poetry I was reading, I was writing around the time I graduated from college is different from what I'm writing now. And I think reading her work has sort of steered me in that direction. I love the simplicity of her writing and how evocative it is, too, and how it also sort of straddles the line between nature, poetry, and spirituality, um, which are two of the themes that I actually touch on quite a bit in my in my own poetry. Other poets whose work I really enjoy include um, Joy Harjo, who is the, uh, the current U.S. Poet Laureate. Natasha Trethaway, Dorian Lau, um, Jennifer K. Sweeney, Sandra Beasley, and even some Robert Frost. And in terms of writing in general, so here's a here's a here's a little fun fact. One of my favorite writers of all time is Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh-huh. Who wrote among among other things, most notably science fiction and fantasy, she also wrote poetry. And it turns out that she was writing poetry before she was even writing science fiction and fantasy novels and short stories. Um, And she was still writing poetry. Um, I think one of the final books that was published before she passed away a couple of years ago was a poetry book. She just, she wrote everything. She wrote whatever she wanted to write. So I just admire her for how she sort of refused to limit herself and also just how she was so prolific and versatile in her writing and how a lot of it was so good in quality. Other authors that come to mind um, include um, N.K. Jemison, Lee Bardugo, and now the rest of them are all escaping me. It's a very long list. <laughs> it is like saying, you know, who's your favorite kid? 
there's so much and sometimes it's it depends on the day. This is what I'm liking today or I'm just liking what I'm I'm reading right now. Mm-hmm. I get a similar questions about which poems have you written are your favorites and I'm like I I can't do that. It that changes by the day as well. <laughs> Absolutely. So so I'm sorry for the unfair question, but I do want to get into a little bit of so you were a music journalist, which feels like a, a dying breed. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that was um that was a freelance thing that I was doing on the side. And the area and I focused on one genre in particular because I wrote primarily for one. I wrote primarily for Sonic Cathedral, which was a is a webzine that focuses on female fronted rock, metal, and progressive music. Quite specific. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's yeah. I was a fan of um, Evanescence in college, which that's um, a female-fronted uh, symphonic rock band that really um, was very popular um, in the early two thousands. I primarily wrote CD reviews, um, which was which was really really fun. Also, did some interviews, including um, a couple of in-person interviews, which meant I got to go on a tour bus. <laughs> it's like an almost famous moment, you know. Sort of, sort of. And, um, you know, without all the drugs and debauchery, probably not, not, nothing, nothing that I ever witnessed. So, but no, like, um, and I think what was fun about those two interviews was that they were with two of my favorite bands. In fact, one of them, um, at the end of the interview, um, I just took a few seconds to tell the singer, um, it's the band is within temptation. So I was talking to the singer uh, Sharon Dunadell, um, how their music in particular had been meaningful for me. I had gotten, I had just gotten their, one of their albums in the mail um, several years earlier. Um, it came up the day before my, uh, one of my grandmothers passed away. And one of the songs on that album is called Memories. And it's all about cherishing the memories of your loved ones. And so it became a song that was very near and dear to my heart. And I, I told, I shared this with Sharon and she was, I think she was so moved by what I told her. And she gave me a piece of maple sugar candy that they had gotten. <laughs> I still have it. I, I still have it. I have refused to open it because to me, it's just, it's just one of those things that you just do not eat. Um, you are a writer. <laughs> we're a quirky bunch. Because we're on the subject of music, what is the difference or is there a difference between a song lyric and poem? I think there is. Lyrics are more or less designed to, they're designed to be listened to. They, the fact that they're usually delivered with a melody, so they have sort of a cadence or rhythm to it, and then they're that those lyrics delivered by the melody are then accompanying this bed of music that goes along with it. And because of the melody, the lyrics are also designed to be irresistible, or as a lot of people say, catchy, um, which makes them very memorable. So it makes it easy for them to get you know, to get stuck in our heads. If you take lyrics out of their musical context, they probably would still be meaningful, but perhaps, but because they are, the melody is not there, sort of the memorability of it is lost a little bit. Poetry, on the other hand, is designed to be read. And that can be either from a visual perspective, as you see it on the page, 
um, with the line breaks and the, seeing the shape of the poem and so forth, or read um, in person. Different from listening to song lyrics because they have the melody and you know sort of the mem memorability associated with that psychologically. Um, there's also a certain artistry in terms of um, hearing a poem being read out loud that's very, very different uh, from listening to a, um, song lyrics being performed during a live performance. If you were to put poetry to music, I think that would be sort of a different thing altogether um, because you would be adding to the poetic performance and sometimes maybe detracting from it as a result because there's much more going on now. Not all poems have rhyming in them, whereas a lot of song lyrics do. And so sometimes trying to fit a song around the music of a song around a poem can be is probably going to be very challenging. Let's take this opportunity to listen to some poetry. Do you have something prepared for us today? I do. I right. do. So I think and I think this is a really um, fitting poem to read right now as um as we're moving through this current stage of the pandemic and we're getting vaccinated and looking forward to doing certain things that we have either missed out on doing or that we miss doing. Um, and one of those things I think that's going to be, that's will be true for a lot of people is traveling. And so here I think is a poem that fits that really well. It's called how to pack for Iceland, leave the umbrella at home. The wind there has a will of its own, and you might not want to tempt it. Plan to dress in layers. How else can one prepare for the unpredictable? Waterproof your body in duck down and feathers and a tortoise shell of nylon. Your feet will want hearths as well, so give them shoes to keep them warm and dry with cushioned midsoles for support. Don't forget the usual necessities, your passport, your phone, a granola bar, a change of clothes in your carry-on. Most importantly, make room for the things you won't expect to bring home. Fistfuls of fresh air, wild and pristine. Deep breaths of black sand and lava salt. The music of geysers and vast countryside. Rhapsodic rivers and vacillating sky, singing themselves into your belongings and spreading like incense smoke once the suitcase is open. Last but not least, take a selfie before departure so you can compare it with the one you take upon your return. Brava. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that, Sarah. I can hear a little bit of that Mary Oliver influence. Mm -hmm. It's just wonderful. It's a it's a snapshot and beautifully done. I, I appreciate it. And if people want to hear more of your poetry, is there a centralized place that they can see it or hear it? Yes. So they can go to my writer website, um, which is sarahlaternowriter.com. Um, I think that will be in the bio or in liner notes, because um, otherwise my last name is a bit long to spell. <laughs> um, so sarahlaternowriter.com. I also, if I ever have publication news about any of my poems, I tend to post it on social media. Um, so I am on 
Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can find me there as well. I think those will also be in the liner notes. Um, and if anybody is also interested, I also have a website for my uh, work as an editor and writing coach, which is at Heart of the Story Editorial and Coaching Services. The URL is heartofthestoryeditorial.com. I thank you so much for helping celebrate Poetry Month, which is through April 30th. It's a really exciting time. I think for poets, I think for creatives in general, this mm -hmm. pandemic, one thing it's done is inspire people to do a little more, to dig a little deeper, get more introspective and and take that, translate that into something really beautiful that they're sharing with others. So thank you so much for adding to that. Oh, you're welcome very much. And um, I sometimes do um, poetry readings on Facebook using Facebook Live, their videos, their live streaming service. So um, my next one is next Thursday, April 29th. This is something that I started doing um, early, um, last year during the pandemic, and people have really enjoyed it. And it's something that I'm going to be continuing to do in the future. If any listeners hear this, uh, listen to this interview, and it is after April 29th, just know that there will be more in the future. Feel free to just uh, keep an eye out uh, through part of the storyland in all its many ways. Well, get inspired with Sarah Latorno, poet and developmental editor. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you again so much for having me, Liz. It's been a lot of fun. Same. And next week, we're going to talk to Michael Coleman, who is an audio optometrist. Let's find out what that means. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for listening. <laughs>